This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. Go ahead and be seated. Thank you. Well, I hope that you are well on this fine Sunday evening. As we continue to walk through uh, our series on the Creed together, uh, we get to this line about Jesus coming to judge the living and the dead. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. What is that all about? It's a cheery thing to talk about on a crisp October day. Uh, All the language that we've been using in the Creed so far, if you've noticed, has been past tense. It's been talking about things that have been done, especially as regards to Jesus Christ. They are things that occurred in the past or were completed in the past and maybe continue on to today, but there's been nothing new so far. And then that changes today. At this point, the tense changes in the Creed, and we start looking forward to something that has not yet happened. The creed shifts from looking backwards at things that have already happened to forward to things that have yet to come. Last week, we noted what it means that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. We saw how Jesus is our mediator who represents God to us on our behalf and then also represents uh, us to God. This week, we learned that Jesus isn't done yet, that there's more that Jesus is going to accomplish He's going to return, and he's going to pronounce some sort of judgment. Judgment on everyone, the living and the dead. So buckle up your seatbelts, because tonight is a sermon about being judged. I heard one yes. Thank you for that. Yeah, and an amen. Do you guys remember Judge Judy? Yeah, right? You know who I'm talking about when I talk about Judge Judy. She's this TV judge. She hears mostly like small claims kinds of cases. She's known for like being really impatient, uh, for bursting out with her temper, for her eye rolls, for her capriciousness. Like I think people come before her because they're sure that they can win her over. But like you never really know like who she's going to side with, right? Like even as you're watching, you're like, oh, she's totally going to lay into that person. And then she doesn't. She lays into the other person. And you're like, I never knew. I never knew the law said that. She's really, really hard to figure out. This is what I thought that being judged by God was going to be like for much of my life. When I was growing up, I had like a lot of thoughts about Judgment Day. I remember hearing sermons about it, youth group talks about being ready for the day of reckoning, the day of judgment. I read Revelation. I read all the Left Behind books. I was trying to get prepared. I imagined that on the day of judgment that I would stand face to face with God and he would read out in front of me all of my sins, all of my shortcomings in front of all of humanity. Imagine how mortifying that that would be. And then God would have no choice but to find me wanting in my ability to keep the divine law. And the penalty for that is death and eternal damnation. And so that's what would be pronounced upon me. And then Jesus would come in from the side and with like a Monopoly get out of jail free card would be like, it's okay. He prayed the prayer when he was six. You can let him in. And then this stern judge of a God would fold his arms, kind of give a little head nod. 
And I'm allowed to go behind that divine velvet rope and into heaven. But that God was none too pleased that I was there because somehow I'd opted into some sort of legal technicality when I really should be burning in hell. As if to confirm my worst fears, the creed tells us that there is a day of judgment coming and that we're all going to be judged. But the creed leaves us with a lot of questions too. By what standard are we going to be judged? What is this kind of judgment that we're going to have to endure? Will I have a chance to plead my case before the judge? What happens after this judgment? I'm going to explore some of those questions today because I think they're important questions. By what standard will we be judged? I think this is a super important question. Maybe the most important one that we can wrestle with today. I think it's one of the most pressing questions that I hear people wrestling with when it comes to trying to understand like what's going to happen at the end of history. So what are the possibilities for how we're going to be judged? I think we can lump them into two categories. I think we can say, okay, we're either going to be judged by an external standard or we're going to be judged by an internal standard. We're either going to be judged by something that we have to learn and conform to or we're going to be judged by some sort of internal compass that we have constructed and then tried to live our lives in accordance with. Historically, faith traditions, not just Christianity, but faith traditions historically have affirmed that first kind of judgment. That there is an external standard. There is something outside of a person, outside of a community to which they are beholden. Old Testament law. Almost every sort of religious construction. These communities initiate people into, a, into their own community and they say, this is what it means to be a Jew, a Christian, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Hindu. It means that we behave in these ways and we don't behave in these other ways. You're initiated into a community's wisdom tradition. And that community then polices and conforms your behavior to what those external expectations are. It's this pressure from without. More recently, I think more in contemporary times, there's been this shift to being judged by maybe an internal standard. As we've grown suspicious of religion and our ability to sort of fairly compare one to the other, and with the rise of existentialism, this idea that, that everything is subjective, that all I can really know is my own perspective. We've started to talk about having to discover my own truth. And you're encouraged to live your truth. External value systems are seen as something that's maybe just some sort of oppression in disguise. And at first blush, this seems freeing. I am free to determine what is important to me. I am free to have a moral set of values that I can live up to until you start trying to do it. And I see this in conversations all the time. People who are lonely, who are isolated, who have crippling anxiety, who are paralyzed by choice and their own individualism that can't live up to their own standard on most days. And can't keep comparing their internal standard to the other internal standards that exist out there. And even if you want to try a religion, how do you know which one? 
Don't you need to try them all and see which one is the truest for you? How can you possibly do that in a lifetime? And then if there is a day of judgment coming, like the creed says, by what standard will I be judged? If I've constructed my own internal set of values, do I give those over to the judge and say, please compare me with this thing? What if the judge says no? Is he going to use somebody else's standards? Who is the judge anyway? Is it a cosmic me? Is it a God? Is that God like an angry Judge Judy? Will the judgment be some sort of balance scales where I hope that I've just put enough on the good side that it outweighs the bad side? Or is it more like a three strikes kind of thing? If I'm constructing this myself, these are the possibilities I have to wrestle with before I choose any sort of value for my life and then try to live by it. But if we turn to Scripture we start to get a clearer idea of what judgment is and maybe what standard we will be held to. I think one of the best places that we can turn to in Scripture to find what judgment might look like is in the Gospel of Matthew, the 25th chapter. There are three parables that, Matthew tell, that uh, Jesus tells in Matthew 25 back to back. I just want to give you a quick summary of each one. They'll each be familiar to you, but we're going to consider them as a whole, as a complete set, instead of diving into one particular one uh, too deeply. The first parable he tells in Matthew 25 is about these ten girls who are waiting for a groom to arrive. And they have these lamps that they have to keep lit. They're supposed to provide light. In ancient Near East weddings, the ceremony begins with a father and a bridegroom making a negotiation for the price of the bride. It's very different than sort of swiping left or swiping right. (laughs) This process could take up to a year. So you could have a father and a bridegroom that kind of agreed in terms, like generally, but it may take them a year to figure out like exactly what the terms are going to be. And that whole time, that bride is betrothed to her groom They are in the marital process, but she still lives at home, and he still lives in his own place. As soon as everything is figured out, the groom goes to the bride's house, and he takes her and escorts her from her father's house to his house, where there's a big party going on. And this is the big wedding feast. Well, it's getting really close to that time. And so the bridegroom goes and he gathers together these 10 women that he knows. And he says, pretty soon I'm going to be coming home with my bride. And the party is already prepared. And I need you to keep watch and light the way for us to come home. And so they're waiting. It's dark. And they're waiting. They'd expected the groom to come by now. It's getting quite late. And finally, they see him coming from far off. And five of these girls look and they find that they have run out of oil for their lanterns. They had one job and they ran out of oil for their lanterns. And so they go to the other five and they say, hey, give us some of your oil. And they're like, we don't like, have oil we can spare. Like we brought enough oil for our lanterns. You're going to have to go and buy some more real quick. 
And so those five that weren't prepared, they run off to buy some more oil, hoping that they can get back in time for the groom to come. But the groom comes while they're gone and goes into the party with his bride and takes the the women that were there into the party with him. Finally, the five that had to go get more oil, they come back and they knock on the door and they say, the party's going on, let us in. And the groom comes and he opens up the door and he looks at the five that are standing there and he says, I don't even know who you are. And then he shuts the door. And then the parable changes. The second parable, we have a wealthy man who is about to go away on a long journey and he calls his servants to him before he leaves. And he gives each of them an incredibly, ridiculously large amount of money according to his sort of ability, the ability that he thinks each one has to manage that money. So to the first servant, he gives them five big old bags of gold. These bags of gold were worth about five years' salary. Gives them five bags of gold. To the second one, he gives them two giant bags of gold. And to the last one, he gives one bag of gold. He goes away. He's away for a very long time. He finally comes back. And he goes to check in with the servants. And the first servants, the one, the one he had given the five bags of gold to, says, hey, I took your money, did some risky stuff with it, but look, I got 10 bags of gold, here you go. And the master says, hey, that's great. You made me so much money. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Second guy comes and he says, I kind of like played the tables with your money. He doesn't say that, I'm interpreting that. He says, I did some risky stuff with your money, but you gave me two bags of gold. I got four, I doubled it for you. And the master says, that's great, thank you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. The, the one that had give, been given one bag of gold, he brings this dirty, like beat up old bag. And he says, listen, I kept your money safe. I buried it because I know that you're a pretty hard guy. And you gather crops where you didn't sow the crops. You gather crops where you didn't scatter any seed. So I didn't want to lose your money. So here it is, safe and sound. The master says, get away from me, you lazy, wicked man. And he casts him out. And then the parable changes. This one gets more abstract. Jesus says, the son of man will come from heaven and leave his throne and will gather all of the people of all the nations before him. And then he will separate them like sheep from goats. The sheep he's going to put on his right, the goats he's going to put on his left. And then he looks at the sheep on his right and he praises them and says, You gave food to the hungry and drink to the thirsty. You gave hospitality to the stranger. You visited people who were sick and who were in prison. Well done. And he looks at the goat and he says, You didn't give any food to the hungry. Or drink to the thirsty. You gave no hospitality to the stranger. You didn't visit anyone who is sick or in prison. You must depart from me. And each group responds the same way. Each group says, but when did we see you? Hungry or thirsty? Or as a stranger? Or in prison? Or infirm? And his response each time is the same. Anytime you did any of those things, for the least of these, my brothers, you you did that to me. 
Each of these parables really deserves its own sermon because I think each brings up as many questions as it has answers. But there are, I think, some through lines when we look at them all together. The first is that judgment happens in each one of these parables. The groom, the wealthy man, the son of man, they all are enacting some sort of judgment. They set things into their proper place by a standard that they apply. That's what judgment is. Judgment is setting things in their proper place. It's where we get the word adjust from. To adjust something is to put it in its proper place. And each parable has some bit of adjusting in it. The friends of the groom were judged by whether or not they had sufficient oil when the groom returned. The servants of the wealthy man were judged by whether or not they made him money with what he'd given them. And the sheep and the goats were judged by how they treated the least among them. Second thing, the authority of the one doing the judging is never called into question in these parables. The groom had the right to control admission into his, into his wedding feast. The wealthy man had the authority to determine what a wise investment was and what wasn't. And the son of man had the authority to separate sheep from goats. The third thing. The standard of judgment that was applied was always met with an if-only excuse. The friends of the groom, they said, if only, if only we'd known exactly when you were returning, we could have made sure that we had enough oil. But the faithful friends didn't know when he was going to return, and they were prepared. The one servant says, if only you'd been a more trustworthy man and less fearsome, then maybe... I would have felt more comfortable risking that money. And it's interesting here because if you read in sort of like the cultural and economic lens of this parable, that third person, he was the wise one among the three. In a pre-capitalist society where you don't have like investing in the stock markets and real estate, the safe thing to do was to take a great sum of money and bury it in a hole in the ground. To try to make more money upon more money upon more money wasn't even in the mindset of people in this culture. That was risky behavior, not laudable behavior as we might see in a capitalistic society today. But the other servants, they didn't have a sense that there was lower risk for them. They started in the same place that the one servant did. The goats... They said, if only you told us that doing things for the least was the same as doing them for you, then we would have done them. But the sheep were just as ignorant as the goats of the weight of their actions. So I think we can see these things clearly. One, judgment happens. Two, the authority of the judge isn't disputed. And three, excuses don't change the outcome of the judgment. At this point, I am not feeling any better about this line of the creed. Judgment's coming. It's like winter is coming. Judgment is coming. And this is the case in Amos 7, which we just heard read a few moments ago. Amos has a vision of God sending a swarm of locusts to completely ravage Israel's crop. And Amos begs God not to, and God relents. Amos has another vision, this time of a huge firestorm coming and just destroying the land and drying up all of the rivers and the lakes. Amos again begs God not to do that, and God relents. And then Amos gets another vision from God, this time God standing next to a wall. 
That wall is built true. And God is holding in his line, in his hand, a plumb line. Now, if we were rewriting this today, we'd say that God had a bubble level. Because there are instruments that we can use to tell if something is straight up and down or straight horizontal across. And builders, since ancient times, have used a plumb line or a plumb bob to do that. It's simply just a string that has a heavy weight on the end. So you know, like, what is true straight up and down. You can build a wall, and you can think that it looks straight. But until you actually hold some sort of external standard up next to it, you won't really know how straight that wall is. God tells Amos he's going to set a plumb line among Israel, and that's it. There's going to be no more chances. So is there any relief that we can find tonight? Maybe if we knew what the standard of judgment was going to be, that would help us out. And this is why I think that an internal standard of judgment, an internal value system is of no use to us. Because we might build that life that looks straight up and down. But if there's going to be a plumb dropped against the wall of our lives, we better make sure that our lives are straight up and down. Because we won't be able to see how out of kilter it really is until that moment. That's what happens in all three of the parables that Jesus told. Each of the people in those parables are pretty sure that they've done an okay job with the things that they were entrusted with. By their own metric of evaluation, they were doing just fine. And it's only when the judge comes along to apply an external standard that they find that they're in trouble. Jesus is asked about that external standard of measurement on several occasions. And he's remarkably consistent with his answer. When a rich young ruler comes and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replies, keep the commandments. When a lawyer asks him the same question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has the same answer, keep the commandments. But both of these guys felt that there had to be a catch. They suspect that they lacked something. And Jesus goes on to respond to each of them and point out the blind spot that they had for keeping the law. That they thought they'd been doing a fine job, but there were key pieces of the law that they had neglected to keep. He drops a plumb line against their lives and shows them how their wall is crooked. There is an external standard, the law, and Jesus uses it. Is that still the standard for us today, though? What about grace? Jesus isn't going to hold us to all the Old Testament stuff, right? Especially not the stuff in Leviticus. I mean, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus seems to be doing something very different with the law there. Hearing all of these topsy-turvy commands that Jesus had just been giving about the last being first, and about turning the other cheek, about the poor being rich. I mean, the listeners then and now must have had hope that Jesus was bringing about a new kind of law, that they could ignore that stodgy old one with all of the sacrifices and the minutiae. Not so, Jesus says. In Matthew 5, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Well, crap. The Apostle Paul is quick to remind us that none of us are able to keep the law. That we've all sinned and fallen short of that standard. I'm still not feeling any better about judgment. 
But maybe we've gotten too far ahead of ourselves. We've won won on roughshod over maybe the most important part of this line in the creed. Perhaps in our haste to understand the judgment and how we will be judged, we've neglected to take a look at who the judge is. Is it that angry Judge Judy in the sky that I have feared my whole life? I think it's hard to read the Old Testament without coming up with a pretty severe image of who God as judge is. A read-through of the prophets makes it seem that God is hell-bent on destroying the unfaithful and the earth along with it. If you were to skip from there to Revelation, you might find your worst fears confirmed. I did. But that would be a mistake. Because the New Testament clarifies who God is by showing us that God's fullest revelation of God's self is not in a prophet's apocalyptic vision, but is in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not only the priest that mediates between us and God in heaven. He is the very one who will judge all humankind. Jesus tells us this explicitly in John 5, verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. The creed affirms this. From there, he will come. Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. If we look back at Matthew 5, where Jesus is speaking about upholding the law, and we read it with that in mind, we read all of it, we get a different picture of what's going on there. Because Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus had set no law-based requirement for becoming one of his followers. There is no special ordinance that you must obey in order to join up with Jesus. His whole Sermon on the Mount up to this point has been about critiquing the law for not going far enough. And he's now demanding from his followers a righteousness even greater than keeping the law. Greater than that of the Pharisees or the teachers of the law who were already trying to be A-plus legalists. Hearers of this then and now have no choice but to gape slack-jawed at Jesus and wonder who could possibly attain such righteousness. And then it hits us. Only one can. The very one that we're staring at. The one who is speaking. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfills the law. Both the ordinances, he kept every one, and the sacrifices, his innocent blood way more valuable than any animal's. In Jesus, the law is put back into its proper context. The Jews had made the law their God and had forgotten the lawgiver. The disciples were in the danger of throwing the law out in favor of just a free-form, free-reign relationship with God. Jesus brings the law and the lawgiver back together again, making them inseparable in himself. To look upon Jesus is to see the law perfectly fulfilled. The righteousness that the law requires is the righteousness present in the person of Jesus Christ. 
To follow Jesus is to unite yourself with him and in doing so become a partaker in his righteousness. That is the gift of Christ. It is no personal achievement of our own. It is a gift extended to us. This is the only way that our righteousness can surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. We participate in the righteousness of Christ, the only righteousness that warrants admission into heaven. And when we're united to Christ, he conforms us to his image. When we believe, we obey his commands. And our obedience to Christ's commandments, they still matter. He said that anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least. Least where? Least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands, Jesus' commands will be called great. Where? In the kingdom of heaven. His righteousness is the only way for us to get into the kingdom of heaven. But our obedience to his commands will still matter once all is said and done. And as we believe and obey, we are shaped and reshaped and reformed into little Christs. This is no internal standard that we have to construct for ourselves. There's not billions of equally good molds out there for us to discover and choose to press our lives into. There is one, one mold that is good. That's the mold of Jesus Christ. And all of humanity is invited to be pressed into that mold. In doing so, we are delivered from the loneliness, the isolation, the anxiety of our individualism. No longer must we try to live our own truth. Truth stands outside us as a person and invites us to lay down the heavy yoke of constructing our identities and take up the much lighter yoke of being conformed into the image of Christ. And when we come to that day of judgment, we don't have to fear some cosmic Judge Judy with divine eye rolls and capriciousness that hold our eternal security at stake. We will come face to face with Judge Jesus (laughs) into whose image we're being formed. And we know this guy. How great is it going to be to look and see from the judge's bench? We know that guy. Our lives have been spent being formed into his image. This must be what Paul meant when he wrote, for now, we see only in a, as a, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Earlier we looked at the parables of judgment in Matthew 25. And we noticed three through lines. We noticed that there is a day of judgment that is coming. That Jesus Christ will return one day, and when he does, we'll stand before him face to face. But we need not fear that day. We notice, too, that Jesus Christ has been given all authority under heaven and earth. And three, we notice that our if-only excuses will not matter on that day. You see, either we are united to him and conformed into his image cloaked with his righteousness, or we're not. Brothers and sisters, I have good news for you today. Good news about the judgment day. There is no need to live your own truth 
if you're being fashioned into the very likeness of truth itself. When Jesus looks upon you on that day, he will see himself like he's looking into a mirror. And the Apostle Paul writes that again and again. He says, but we all with unveiled faces reflecting as a mirror the glory of the Lord are transformed into the same glory to glory. And he says, I live and yet no longer I, but Christ lives in me. And again, for me to live is Christ. There need to be no surprises on that day of judgment. Our judge is one we know. One who perfectly kept and fulfilled the very law by which we will be judged. Who paid all of the penalties for the infractions that we made. The righteousness that is required of us, but impossible for us to attain, is offered to us oh so freely. And it's by this grace you have been saved through faith, not of your works, so that no one may boast. Every time we gather together, we end by participating in communion. We remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, a sacrifice made on our behalf. We come to this table as the Spirit prompts us, and we break off a piece of the bread and dip it in a cup, and as we eat it, we participate again in the redemption that Christ offers us. And each week we come to this table from a new perspective. We never come to this table the same way twice. If you're going to be leading us in worship or helping to serve communion, I would invite you to come forward at this time. Brothers and sisters, as we approach the table tonight to partake in communion, I invite you to lay down your burden at the altar and exchange it for the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Beloved, take off the yoke of having to construct your own truth, your own system of values to try and justify yourself, and take on the obedience to the commands of Christ. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Take off a lived life of fear, A life lived in fear of a severe, angry judge waiting to condemn you to hell. And take on a life lived in relationship with Jesus, who has gone ahead of you to prepare a place for you and will come back to take you there. Take off the legalism of striving to make yourself righteous in God's eyes, worthy of his love, and take on the righteousness of Christ and let him unite you to your creator. Stand as we sing together. The feast is prepared. The bridegroom says come. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.